Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to look tonight at a Christmas theme, the Messiah. But the shadow side, the self-appointed Messiah, as Moses sets out to rescue the people of God, kind of in his own strength. Exodus 2, starting at verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, so he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he smote the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us the lesson of rescue, the lesson of providence, and the lesson of exile. Teach us to esteem the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. And Father, teach us, we pray, the glory of the Messiah whom you appointed. Don't let us be self-appointed. and Help us to act according to our places and callings. Help me to speak boldly. Help us all to hear your word and be changed by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These vignettes about Moses' early life are curious. We are clearly not yet into the main movement of the story, which is about God rescuing his people from Egypt and telling them how to build the tabernacle. We're still in the early preparation So, chapter 1 ends with the report of genocide, Pharaoh commissioning everyone in Egypt to gather together to throw the male babies in the river. Chapter 2 then begins and ends with marriage and a son. We'll look at that at the end of the sermon. But there's a counterpoint here, obviously. Pharaoh says, kill the sons. God's people proceed to have sons and then grandsons in the face of Pharaoh's command. 
What do we learn about God, though? Notice that God is not mentioned either in the first half of the chapter about Moses' birth or in the second half of the chapter about Moses' sojourn, his self-appointedness as a Messiah and his sojourn in Midian. God doesn't appear until verse 23, which we'll look at next week. Where is God? What do we learn about him? We learn again that he delivers in surprising ways. And that he calls us to identify with his people, even at significant personal cost. God calls us to identify with his people. So Moses learned this, I would say, in three, three lessons. He learned the lesson of rescue. The core of the story tonight is about Moses trying to rescue people and failing miserably. He also learned the lesson of exile. We'll see that in the name of his son. And he learned the lesson of providence as he proceeded to have a son in defiance of Pharaoh's decree. What's the lesson of rescue? Well, he went out and identified with God's people. Moses went out to his brothers. Moses had grown up in the palace. Uh, Stephen tells us that at this point he was already 40 years old. He's not a kid. He's not a newbie. He understands something of Egyptian culture. Well, he's grown up. He's 40. And he goes out to see his brothers. And in that time and place, of course, it didn't take long to see a significant act of injustice. An Egyptian smiting a Hebrew. Moses looks this way and that way. Sees no one, smites the Egyptian, hides him in the sand. That was quick. What are you doing, Moses? Clearly Moses didn't think it was a problem. He goes out the next day. And realizes that God's people are not interested in his methods. That his killing a solitary guard had no more chance of stopping the Egyptian juggernaut than him throwing a board in the Nile would have of stopping the flow of the river. Right? He's ready to save God's people and his approach to doing it is stupid. What's the lesson of rescue? Well, Joining the church, identifying with God's people, is not just positive. Yeah, you gain brothers. You gain brothers and sisters with problems, and that means their problems become your problems. Moses goes out and looks on the burdens of his people, and he realizes that he has to ask himself, am I willing to bear these burdens? Where do I fit in? Do I fit in in Egypt's royal elite? Son of Pharaoh's daughter? Or do I fit in here with the people of God? Are we willing to pay the status penalty that can come from belonging to the church? Are we willing to say the problems of these brothers and sisters are my problems? Their burdens are my burdens. Moses attempted to carry those burdens, not realizing that if all it took was a self-appointed Messiah who would kill a guard here and there, Israel would have been freed long ago. 
So he kills the Egyptian. The next day, he thinks he's on the moral high ground. Man, the people will appreciate me. And instead, he realizes that they see him as a fool. Who made you a judge and deliverer? Who made you a prince and a judge? You're going to kill me too? That's your approach to conflict resolution, Moses? So the text makes it sound like Pharaoh puts out a warrant and Moses goes to Midian with the shirt on his back. Midian is in present-day Jordan. You have Egypt there at the top of Africa. To get to Midian, you have to cross through Sinai and then through that southern tip of Israel and then you're down in the southern part of Jordan on the shores of the Gulf of Aqaba. That's where the land of Midian is to be found. From the perspective of Egyptian culture, Moses has gone to the back of beyond, the backside of the desert, as chapter 3, verse 1 says. He has left the center, and he is firmly in the periphery. He goes from the palace to this foreign land, Midian, And there he sees one more opportunity to combat injustice. They've got these seven shepherdesses, seven girls with a flock, and they do this work. They raise water out of the well by hand. Now, all of us live in the age of electricity. If you have a well, you have somebody else pump the water out. You have an electric pump that sucks water out of there. Most of us don't know what it's like to haul heavy buckets of water up inch by inch on a rope. But these girls had to do that. If you've ever watered animals, you know that animals tend to drink a lot of water. So the girls laboriously fill all the water troughs, get everything ready. Apparently Moses is just sitting there watching. And then, once the water troughs are filled, other shepherds come up to the well. These are grown men, they're tough, they're mean, and they don't feel like drawing water, and so they just push the girls away and start to let their animals drink. Thanks for doing all the work for us. (laughs) So these shepherds attempt to muscle in on these girls. That's when Moses stands up and helps the girls push the shepherds away again. He saves their water. He saves their work. He delivers them. So three times in a row, we see Moses intervening on behalf of the oppressed. Clearly God is calling somebody who naturally wants to help the oppressed. It took him 40 years to find his vocation, but now he's found it. And he's realized, if I can't stop the Egyptian juggernaut, I can at least stand up against petty water thieves out in the middle of nowhere. I can help some girls this afternoon. I'm doing my good deed. Moses has a successful rescue finally. His good intentions failed the first two times, but they succeeded this last time. What what does that tell us about God? It tells us that God wants us to act according to our place and calling. None of us have the calling to go kill people. Not our calling. That's why Moses failed. 
because he took the law in his own hands. But this, helping the daughters of rule get their water back, he acted according to his place and calling. All of us have the calling to stop injustice as we have opportunity and ability. Not by killing people, but by pushing back in the right way. Saying, no, that water belongs to them. You shouldn't take it. So the girls are excited. They go home. You can pity poor Rule trying to get this story straight from seven of them at once. Why are you home early, girls? Oh, an Egyptian showed up and helped us. Now, probably there weren't a whole lot of random Egyptians sitting out there by the well who would help them water the flock on a regular basis. So they're all excited about this new Egyptian guy. And Rule says, well, go invite him to dinner. You just left him out there at the well. So Moses comes and... There's so many ways to fill this in, but all it says is that Moses was content to live with the man. Doesn't say how Rule came to the conclusion that he should invite him to stay. Doesn't say how Moses decided this is better than Egypt. Doesn't say what Moses thought about Zipporah or why he chose her over her six sisters. None of that is reported on. Much to the tantalizing delight of later expositors who have filled in all kinds of details in this story, but that's not the point. This isn't a biography of Moses in that sense. And really we should be grateful that this Bible is a short book, not a long book that tells us every detail that everyone has ever wanted to know. Those books are not fun. This book is exciting. Moses settles down there. Now, We read this, and it doesn't seem to me that just obviously on the surface of the Exodus text is that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. He left ahead of an arrest warrant. He was wanted for murder. He ran out in the desert and just happened to find a family with a nice-looking daughter, and he married her, started working for her dad. And he stayed out there for the rest of his life, till he was 80 years old. End of the story, right? But no, the New Testament tells us Exodus focuses on the everyday side of Moses' life. All of us have an everyday side of our life that probably is not even as exciting as Moses' life for these few days. It's more like the next 40 years where Moses would go out with the flock and watch sheep run around all day. And then he would do the same the next day, and the next day, and the next day, for 40 years. But the inner spiritual dynamic was that he was suffering the reproach of Christ while he was out there wandering around the desert somewhere in southern Jordan and the Sinai Peninsula. How does that work? What, what is the reproach of Christ? Well, the reproach of Christ is not Jesus looking at him condemningly or saying, oh, Moses, you're a murderer. I'll give you 40 years to meditate on that. 
A couple of years ago, Alexa and I watched this Russian movie in which somebody does that. He spends his entire life as a monk on a remote island meditating on how he, under duress from a Nazi officer, had shot and killed one of his fellow monks. And it was a weird Russian movie. But at the end, it's revealed to him that he didn't actually kill the guy. He just shot at him, wounded him, and the guy fell in the water and swam to shore and was fine. Comes back to the island 40 years later and says, Hey, it's me. You didn't hurt me. But is that what Moses is doing? Is that the reproach of Christ 40 years in the wilderness feeling bad about his murder? No. The reproach of Christ is not Moses' own guilt. The reproach of Christ is rather the world's negative attitude about Jesus that they project onto Moses. That is, the reproach of Christ is the world saying, Jesus? You serve him? Wow, I thought you were smarter than that. I didn't think somebody like you would do something like that. Hostility toward, the world's hostility toward the Son of God, that's the reproach of Christ. Now, did Moses deserve this arrest warrant from Pharaoh? Sure he did. That's not the point. Rather, the point is Moses chooses to identify with the people of God. He didn't do it wisely. He didn't do it well, but he did it. And because he did it, he paid this status penalty and went from Pharaoh's palace to wandering around in the desert after the tales of sheep. He gave up wealth and power in order to serve Jesus. In order to be a Hebrew, one of the people of God. That's the lesson of exile. If you identify with God's people, you'll get treated like God's people. Or better, if you identify with God's people, you'll get treated like God's Messiah. Are you ready to be treated like Jesus? I don't mean the whole being worshipped part. I mean the being of low social status. Working an unpaid volunteer job, which is what Jesus worked during his time of ministry. Being so obnoxious to the establishment that you get killed. Now, we can fault Moses for being a self-appointed Messiah. And we can celebrate at Christmas time that we have a better Messiah than Moses was. Praise God, we do. But we also have to recognize that exile and being out in the desert of low status, far from the centers of power and wealth, is the lot in general of the people of God. God doesn't call many of us to the lucrative occupation of amassing wealth. He doesn't call many of us, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. Now he called Moses to a noble task, and the rest of the Pentateuch is about that task. Moses spent one-third of his life doing that, and he spent two-thirds of it not doing that. A whole third of it out in the desert. 
And how do we know what Moses felt about this exile? Well, he names his son in verse 22, but really in so doing, he names himself. The Hebrew word ger means stranger, sham means there. So Moses names his son stranger there. The only window in this entire chapter about how Moses felt I have been a stranger in a strange land. How comfortable are you on earth? Do you feel that heaven is your homeland? Or do you say, I was born here, I lived here, everybody speaks my language, I understand this world, I get along in this world, I have a place in this world, and I really don't feel the need of anything beyond this world. How real is heaven to us? Would any of you name your son Gershom? Moses went into exile away from birth, both his birth culture of Israel, his adoptive culture of Egypt, and he was thrust out into this third culture of Midian. And he felt the sting. That was the reproach of Christ that made him a stranger and a pilgrim on this earth. Do you feel like an exile from heaven? I won't be happy. I won't be satisfied. I won't be content. My life won't be whole until I'm there with Jesus. It's a hard thing to feel when you live in your native culture when you're a comfortable part of a comfortable majority when if you play by the rules in general, you can expect a very healthy dose of peace and prosperity. Which Moses could have too. right? Pharaoh's palace. One of the ritziest places in the eastern Mediterranean. But he left it for the reproach of Christ. Moses had to learn the lesson of exile before he could lead Israel into the wilderness. You and I will have to learn it before we can tear ourselves away from the America we've grown up in and truly call heaven the promised land that's our real home. Moses didn't name his son stranger there because exile was easy or pleasant. You certainly have to wonder what Zipporah thought if she approved of the name, Moses really didn't care because he was a stranger and he felt like a stranger and he didn't care who knew that and that's why he called his oldest son that name. So Moses learned the lesson of rescue. You have to act according to your place and calling. If you set out to do God's work in your own way, you will fail. He learned the lesson of exile, which is that the reproach of Christ hurts and that identifying with the people of God is not something to be done lightly because it can cost you an entire way of life. And then, finally, the whole chapter in its shape shows us the lesson of providence. 
The first lesson about providence, once again, is that daughters give life. The word daughter appears seven times in this chapter. We looked last week at how the first section really highlights the role of daughters in saving Moses and thus in saving Israel. We see here how it highlights one particular daughter, Zipporah, who gives life to Moses' sons. And thus, the chapter is bracketed at the beginning and the end with marriage and a son. As I said, an obvious counterpoint to the ending of chapter 1. Pharaoh says, kill the sons. God's people continue to give birth to sons. Pharaoh's decree doesn't stand. God's command is what stands. The natural rhythms of life carry on despite the wicked decree of the genocidal tyrant. So what's the lesson of providence? Even in the worst circumstances, God's word, be fruitful and multiply, prevails over Pharaoh's word, every son you shall throw in the river. God's providence is stronger than the tyrant's decree. Moses was a self-appointed Messiah with a few things to learn. He was. Chapter 2 is very clear about that. Jesus, whose coming we celebrate this week, was a God-appointed Messiah with a few things to teach. Jesus taught Moses the lessons of rescue, exile, and providence. He prepared Moses through these things to deliver his people. And a greater than Moses is here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons that you taught your servant in the wilderness. Father, we thank you that you can use murderers and every other kind of sinner to save your people. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we identify with your people, as we raise our hand and say, yes, I'm a Christian. Help us to acknowledge that we too are strangers and pilgrims on the earth, that we seek a better city one with foundations built and maintained by Almighty God. Father, help us as strangers in a strange land to acknowledge that strangeness and to not be too comfortable here. We thank you for the comforts we have, but we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to worship them, to be ready and willing to give them up to esteem the reproach of Christ as better than the treasures of Egypt or of the United States of America. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.